Well, look at that. When you ban someone, it automatically removes all of their emojis they've reused. So, yay. Um, so, uh, I mean, we'll go through. I've, I've got, uh, we're not, are we, maybe we should just start. We've got a bunch of people in here already. Um, we'll go ahead and jump in. So, uh, first off, as always, thank all of you guys for joining us. Uh, we are very excited to have you here. Uh, last seven days of my life have been uh, hilariously stressful, so I'm glad there's a lot of people here who can help pick up some of the slack because my brain is probably not going to be uh, even as minorly useful as it is normally. Uh, a couple things of housekeeping before we dive in. Uh, as always, we're going to request anyone who has a desire to help us volunteer, take care of things, uh, yeah, moderate, uh, run a chat, be in a chat, anything you want to do, feel free to hit us up in the volunteer channel. Uh, we're really excited to uh, sort of start a whole bunch of new chats. Uh, on that note, uh, this week we are going to be doing our best to start up uh, Cinema 1 and 2. I know we had a few people excited about starting that up. Uh, I won't be able to host it every week. Uh, this one takes a lot of my time, but I'm definitely going to be able to be involved. So please uh, hit up the volunteer chat if you want to help run one of those or have any other chats that you want to talks, readings, anything else. Um, and we are a few days behind on all of our recordings. I'm going to be getting those up probably uh, later tonight, tomorrow uh, at the latest. Uh, with that, any other notes on any of the other talks? I know we've Jack, Will, Varun, Muskie, Kent. Um, I'm I'm late on the first Butler uh, recording. There was a, an audio issue, um, but I'm dealing with it. So I know I got a few DMs and a few mentions for like. The recording of the first Judith Butler meeting, that's on me. I apologize. It should be done today. I can't believe I missed Judith Butler. Uh, that's okay. I'll survive. I'll survive. I, I, I definitely want to join the next one. Um, anything else? Uh, Kent, I know we had a bunch of stuff going on uh, in your world. Anything big? Uh, yes, there's the, uh, <clears throat> the Zizek uh, reading of Looking Awry that's uh, on the last couple of chapters. And then there's the Heidegger basic works where we're going to read what is metaphysics this week. Awesome. And just for the uh, the last side of the week, literature is cr uh, currently trying to uh, choose its next test. Last I looked, Heraclitus's Fragments was winning, but it's still kind of early after recovering from some technical difficulties. And then finally, uh, Simon Dunn will be meeting on Sunday at 11, p 11 a.m. PDT to continue their discussion on technical objects. And Quarantine Literature will be meeting Saturday at 12 p.m. PDT uh, to go over whatever text we do choose. Uh, so uh, today's chat and reading is on uh, Chapter 3, Section 4, Psychoanalysis and Ethnology inside of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, it's uh, going to be a fun one because anytime Deleuze and Guattari start off a chapter by saying we're moving too fast, you know very damn well they're not going to be slowing down. So it's a whole thing. Um, as always, join us in the discussion chat live. Uh, type away. Uh, ask any notes if you have commentary uh, in between every paragraph. We will be taking all kinds of questions and all kinds of thoughts, uh, please join us. Uh, we're really excited. So with that, I guess I'll go ahead and uh, just dive into psychoanalysis and ethnology.
We are moving too fast, acting as if Oedipus were already installed within the savage territorial machine. However, as Nietzsche says with regard to bad conscience, such a plant does not grow on that kind of terrain. This is explained by the fact that the necessary conditions for Oedipus, as a familial complex, exist in the framework of the familialism suited to psychiatry and psychoanalysis, are obviously not present. Primitive families constitute a, practice, constitute a praxis, a politics, a strategy of alliances and filiations. Formally, they are the driving elements of social reproduction. They have nothing to do with an expressive microcosm. In these families, the father, the mother, and the sister always function as something other than father, mother, or sister. And in addition to the father, the mother, etc., there is the affine, uh, who constitutes the active, concrete reality and makes the relations between families coextensive with the social field. It would not even be exact to say that the family determinations burst apart at every corner of this field and remain attached to strictly social determinations, since both kinds of determinations form one and the same component in the territorial machine. Since familial reproduction is not yet a simple means, or a material at the service of a social reproduction of another nature, there is no possibility of reducing uh, rabatrisseur social reproduction to familial reproduction, nor is it possible to establish one-to-one -one relations between the two that would confer on any familial complex whatever an expressive value and an apparent autonomous form. On the contrary, it is evident that the individual in the family, however young, directly invests a social, historical, economic, and political field that is not reducible to any mental structure or effective constellation. That is why, when one considers pathological cases and processes of cure in primitive societies, it seems to us entirely insufficient to compare them with psychoanalytic procedure by relating them to criteria borrowed from the latter. For example, a familial complex, even if it differs from our own, or cultural material, even if it is brought into relation with an ethnic unconscious, as seen in attempted parallelisms between the psychoanalytic cure and the shamanistic cure, Devereux and Levi Strauss, our definition of schizoanalysis focused on two aspects, the destruction of the expressive pseudo-forms of the unconscious and the discovery of desire's unconscious investments of the social field. It is from this point of view that we must consider many primitive cures. They are schizoanalysis in action. I'm not going to say anything because I'm just confused. Anyone feel free to jump in. So I, I think uh, at, least, at least my interpretation with regards to what they're saying about the mother and the father, I, I think they're talking about the illegitimate use where uh, I, I think there's a... So I it's, uh, so I think the correct use would be the intensive sort of uh, with regards to understanding uh, through naming, right? And uh, what, so, so I think if if you I think they're talking about uh, that that incorrect use of the third synthesis, right? Where you would um, the third paralogism, where you would extract a global person or somebody that is rather than an intensive relationship. But I, I think with regards to the entire thing of this, uh, this, this uh, uh, paragraph, it's regards to, I mean, I think desiring production is, 
is so design and production in many ways is the limit of of uh, of basically the social forces that hold it together. So social production or the so and the socius that they come into being through, you know, when design and production organizes itself in, into mass social holes, right? You, you, it's, there's in a society you don't just have one pe- per people; you have like many people, and uh, I, I think it's from those relationships that you essentially you essentially get different forms of repression and the and social production in a way is supposed to um, hold on to desire and production it's supposed to sort of keep that limit and uh, and if the limit sort of breaks then you get it you then you get the whole decoded flow and stuff so i i think it's worth uh, just for a moment reading uh, just a little bit of holland uh which i think helps me uh, it helped eliminate a little bit of this chapter for me um the line at uh, Eugene Holland's Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus, Introduction to Schizoanalysis, we have a PDF in Outbound Files. Um, Finally, anti-production is the organization of matter and energy flows on the socius, provides a crucial corrective to what Deleuze and Guattari call the exchangeism of Levi Strauss. Uh, in fact, the concept of the socius provides a materialist basis for what Levi Strauss called the symbolic order. That is, for the codes and the systems of inscription that organize desire socially in the different modes of social production. Uh, just skipping ahead. Um, for Deleuze and Guattari, by contrast, Chapter 3 of Ep- Anti-Oedipus is meant to show so- social organization is not everywhere the same. Forms of coding and systems of inscription differ significantly among three ideal type modes of social production they analyze, in part because desire gets organized or inscribed on the type of socius specific to each mode of social production. And right now we're talking deeply about that that first mode, uh, the earth, uh, before we get into the despot and capital. Yeah, I think a good example of coding, at least, I mean, it's a, at least before capitalism, capitalism relies on coding in the sense that coding is axiomatizing. And before, I mean, right now we're in primitive societies. So with regard to this form of coding, I think it's it's in terms of uh, quantitative and qualitative, uh, qualitative and qualitative factors or attributes. And so, and so I mean, the, the example that I, I think, if I remember correctly, Holland gives this too, but uh, the example is that of the of, of a married bachelor and an unmarried bachelor, right? So if you remember from chap from all the way back from chapter one, the body without organs is produced, but it doesn't it doesn't do any actual producing. It's just that surface that, you know, as they say in, in section five, is is is, is and, and it does the practical question. Of, it, it almost works as a sort of organization center of asking where to cut the flow, where to break the flow. And you know, I think one example of this could be like uh, as Holland gives out is the example of the married of the of the married man. So when a man is married, he's coded in a certain way that his code is that of a married man. So the the flows or the, the the breaks or flows that he interrupts will be very different from the flow breaks or flows that the bachelor, who is coded as a bachelor, interrupts. Right. So. Uh, in, in such a sense, I, I mean, in such a sense, co- coding has to do with this sort of system of semiotics or meaning that imply that implies that that or works above to imply or allow restrictions or you know disavow restrictions as well and so yeah it, it goes back and i think one way to visualize the body without organs or at least the body without organs in terms of the socius is with regards to um the socius as the collective body without organs right it is the same thing, right? They say desire and production and social production is the same flow of desire, but it's separated by regime. Well, so and, and really quick, because I, uh, you're making, I want to just dive in because I think this is a very specific point. My understanding was, as I've read this, 
that the the socialists during these sort of uh, the first two phases, we'll say there are these three phases, uh, the last one being capital. During the first two, the body without organs and the socialists are almost uh, intrinsically linked. They're the same thing, whereas with capital, uh, due to the way things are overcoded and the organization of society, the body without organs is a- actually becomes separated from the socius and becomes its own thing able to act and be and be inscribed upon itself. Yeah, but I mean, uh, with, re- with regards to functioning, I think in terms of functioning, in terms of attraction and repulsing, the fact that it's produced in terms of when, when, when desire and production produces anti-production, right? Desire and production somehow produces anti-production, which leads to a disjunction. And disjunction leads to that uh, example of schizophrenic table, right? Where the machines need to detach for the product identity of the table to come into existence, essentially. But um, then with regards to the body without organs, the body without organs then functions as, as either attracting or repulsing. And... I, 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 in, in the same way, the socius does the exact same thing, right? It it codes stuff, and, and so it has the opportunity to, to essentially code and decode in, in terms of attraction and repulsion, and um, and I, 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 that's that's why that's why I think it's, it's safe to assume that they are talking about sort of like a collect, collective body without organs, or maybe even you know everyone's body without organs all combined together to form one massive body with organs. But I think the key thing here is that this is in terms of social formations. And I think uh, Frogtown also brought this brought, brought this point up uh, with regards to. Um, what with regards to what they're talking about in terms of social production is that in terms of uh, it, 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 it sort of works in a way that I think they're, it's, it's almost like a Nietzschean thesis, right? That they don't see man as a social individual, This I think in a way. And in terms of understanding the social individual, they say that social formations almost in a specific way might actually be repressive. And, and they're talking about how these, when, when social formations form together, they work to sort of, you know, they work to sort of blockade that limit of desire and production or keep it in check. Well, so in, and when they're talking about savagery and they're talking about that sort of uh, first primitive worldview, uh, the, the way that everything functions as Holland describes it, uh, the, the need for these coatings and the symbolism is excessively deep because everything is very much run by it. But the, as he puts it, uh, uh, because there is no economics as we know it today, uh, savagery is also the social form most harshly governed by codes of conduct, belief, and meaning, uh, necessarily so, uh, because that's how you're able to stop overcoding. That's how you're able to stop excess. Uh, he brings up the idea of how they have ritual sacrifices, they have feasts, they have... Uh, orgies. They have all kinds of stuff uh, under the original setup that really stops that sort of uh, excessive economics of the whole thing. Um, and so savagery is the is the one most harshly formed and and where these things are most sort of built up. Yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. There's there's a really great I think with regards to coding and stuff, <laughs> the economics of orgies. But uh, there's a really great lecture. I think someone linked it here before, but. Uh, uh, so uh, this is like so the Purdue University actually has been has been trans I think sequen- sequentially for the last couple months or maybe years have been translating all these Deleuze lectures like they have lectures they have like seventeen lectures on his book on Leibniz in the fold and they have uh, uh, they, they I think they just had like like last night or something they just added lectures on the war machine from a thousand plateaus and they have one anti Oedipus lecture which is all about codes which is he's Deleuze is being very clear in that lecture when he's saying that in terms of once we reach capitalism, 
the nightmare of all societies is the decoded flow. And what these primitive societies he sees in these primitive societies in the sense is that uh, these primitive societies had to create all these rituals or systems of meaning. And I mean, we have to also be careful in terms of meaning here, right? Because they, they're not doing like hermeneutic analysis. They're saying that meaning is meaning in terms of function rather than meaning in terms of, you know, some Lacanian sort of triad. But um, with regards to, I, I think what they say with these, with these rituals, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, I think, I think in a way it's sort of to, to, to keep, to keep, uh, to not reach the limit, right? To, and it goes back to social formations and social formations sort of uh, restrict that limit from reaching a desire in production. And that's why we have those rituals. But I think in terms of capitalism, everything everything is almost deterritorialized and you reach like decoded flows and stuff. And, and, and these limits sort of break down in terms of the excess. Well, it's, it's uh, the, the, the word Holland really likes to use is axiomatization, which is a terrible fucking word, but also a great one for it, uh, where... Everything becomes so qualitative. Oh, it's it's a it's a very different beast. I, I do want to uh, make sure we do keep moving on, but I want to talk about uh, the last part of this uh, uh, paragraph, where it talks about our definition of schizoanalysis focused on two aspects: the destruction of the expressive pseudo forms of the unconscious and the discovery of desires unconscious investments in the social field. It is from this point of view we must consider many primitive cures. They are schizoanalysis in action. It's very much what this uh, section, I believe, is about, uh, is is uh, uh, looking back and deciding what worked, how things are set up, and how things were set up amongst, uh, as they refer to it, the savage uh, times, um, and utilizing sort of that understanding of how desire flows once worked uh, as a cure, as they say, for capital. Uh, is is that close? Because it's it's the lens I ended up reading the rest of the pair, the the section through. And if it's not the case, <laughs> we've I've got a problem. Yeah, I don't know if in this paragraph, I don't think they're hinting at a cure just yet. I think what they're getting at is like the way these. So we talked previously about how structures are like in the practice for those, these societies. They're not abstract. They're not um, They're not really dealt with through like, th- as they would be in a written culture. Uh, they're dealt with at a more like immediate worldly level, right? Where the people are sort of weaved into the world with them, with these things, which is one of the reasons I think bodily markings are more important in that regard. But what I think is, um, what I think I see happening here is like they're, they're demarcating some differences between this society and like um, say it's capitalist society in terms of territorialization more particularly in terms of like the family as we're used to it seems to be a microcosm for the society so right like we all know this like if you watch like um, you know contemporary uh, news in the US that's one thing that happens right they talk about how the family's constructed and that's how you're supposed to diagnose social health. But in um, in this society, it looks like those conditions aren't present, which is one of the reasons that the Oedipal complex isn't present as a as a lens for even doing this, that kind of analysis. And that um, when we're talking about like unconscious investment and desiring production, 
They write, on the contrary, it is evident that the individual and the family, however young, directly invests a social, historical, economic, and political field that is not reducible to any mental structure or effective, affective constellation. So right, we're looking at how like uh, desiring production and desire as I think the technical term in psychoanalysis is cathetsis, but how there's those libidinal in, uh, investments, again, those reactionary and revolutionary aspects that also get um, carried over into an economic field that Brooks was saying earlier, and how schizoanalysis uh, in this society works without psychoanalysis in that regard and actually goes into the structure and in, um it performs a, a different kind of analysis than uh, psychoanalysis will later sort of develop, uh, particularly with respect to Oedipus. Well, in, in the uh, next I, paragraph, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bruno. Uh, sorry, I think that quote about uh, psycho psychology and the psychic stuff and this stuff, I, I think what they're referring to actually is the fact that, um, you know, they're not concerned about cultural. I mean, they're different. They're not anthropologists, right? They're not. They're not going. I don't think they're studying like cultural norms. I think what they have in mind is a universal project. So I think in that line, what they're talking about is essentially that they're going to study a universal project from the point of view of you know their their transcendental unconscious. You know, they've used Kantian critique multiple times here to harken out these. And it's, it's almost something universal in this regard. Like they're, I think, desire machine. Yeah, they say everything is a machine and desire machines. Are their universal? They they are universal in this regard. And I think that's what they're actually referring to in that paragraph that they're going to study it through desiring production. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think we disagree because right they're looking at those unconscious investments, which is you know which is the unconscious, right? We're talking about like if it's libidinal, we're talking about desiring production in that regard. I, I guess I'm. Contrast, trying to keep the contrast to psychoanalysis because it seems to be critical here, but I, I don't think we disagree. Well then, uh, I'm going to go ahead and dive into the next uh, uh, paragraph because it does uh, get into cures. <laughs> and I would love to, uh, at some point, understand what their meaning behind cure is because uh, they use it throughout this. Um, Victor Turner gives a remarkable example of such a cure among the Ndembu. The example is more even more is the more striking to our perverted eyes for the fact that at first glance everything appears edible. Effeminate, insufferable, vain, failing at everything he tries, the sick K is preyed upon by the ghost of his maternal grandfather, who cruelly reproaches him. Although the Ndimbu are matrilineal and must live with their maternal kin, K has stayed an exceptionally long time in the matrilineage of his father, whose favorite he was, and has entered into marriage with paternal cousins. But with the death of his father, he is driven away and returns to the maternal village. There, his house expresses his situation well, being wedged between two sectors, the houses of the members of the paternal group and those belonging to his own matrilineage. How does the divination responsible for indicating the cause of the illness proceed and the medical cure responsible for treating it? The teeth are the cause. The top two incisors of the ancestor hunter contained in a sacred pouch, but, but which can escape from the pouch and penetrate the body of the sick man. In order to diagnose and ward off the effects of the incisor, the soothsayer and the medicine man launch into a social analysis concerning the territory and its environs the chieftainship and its sub-chieftainships, 
the lineages and their segments, the alliances and the and the affiliations. They constantly bring to light desire in its relations with political and economic units, the very point on which, moreover, the witnesses try to mislead them. Divination becomes a form of social analysis in the course of which hidden struggles between individuals and factions are brought to light. In such a way, they can be treated by traditional ritual methods. The vague nature of mystical beliefs allowing them to be manipulated in relation to a great number of social situations. It seems that the pathological incisor is indeed mainly that of the maternal grandfather, but the latter was a great chief. His successor, the real chief, had had to relinquish the throne for fear of being bewitched, and his would-be heir, intelligent and ambitious, does not exercise the power. The actual chief is not the real chief. As for the sick K, he has not been able to assume the role of mediator that could have made him a candidate for chief. Everything becomes complicated because of the colonizer-colonized relations. The English have not recognized the chieftainship. The impoverished village is falling into decrepitude. The two sectors of the village result from a fusion of two groups that have fled the English. The elders bemoan the current decadence. The medicine man does not organize a sociodrama, but a veritable group analysis centering on the sick individual. Giving him potions, attaching horns to his body for drawing up the incisor, making the drums beat, the medicine man proceeds with a ceremony interrupted by halts and fresh departures, flow of, flows of all sorts, flows of words and breaks. The members of the village come to talk, the sick subject talks, the ghost is invoked. The medicine man explains, everything recommences, drums, chants, trances. It is not only a question of discovering the preconscious investments of a social field by interest, but, more profoundly, its unconscious investments by desire, such as they pass by way of the sick person's marriages. His position in the village, and all the positions of a chief, lived in intensity within the group. <sighs> Uh, I'm not sure there's actually much to discuss here because they actually go into uh, analysis in the next paragraph. Yeah, I think we can just keep going. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a, it was a really good reading, though. That was really a solid paragraph describing that. I like that. Um, uh, I will go ahead and continue, unless someone else wants to dive in. We said that the point of departure seemed edible. It was only the point of departure for us. Conditioned to say Oedipus every time someone speaks to us of father, mother, grandfather. In fact, the Ndingbu analysis was never Oedipal. It was directly plugged into social organization and disorganization. Sexuality itself, through the women and the marriages, was just an investment of desire. The parents played the role of stimuli in it, and not the role of group organizers or disorganizers. The role held by the chief and his personages. Rather than everything being reduced to the name of the father or that of the maternal grandfather, the latter opened onto all the names of history. Instead of everything being projected onto a grotesque hiatus of castration, everything was scattered in the thousand breaks flows of the chieftainships, the lineages, the relations of colonization, the whole interplay of races, clans, alliances, and filiations, this entire historical and collective drift. Exactly the opposite of the Oedipal analysis, when it stubbornly crushes the content of delirium, when it stuffs it with all its might into the symbolic void of the father. Or rather, if it is true that the analysis doesn't even begin as Oedipal, except to our way of seeing, doesn't it become Oedipal nevertheless in a certain way? And in what way? 
Yes, it becomes Oedipal in part, under the effect of colonization. The colonizer, for example, abolishes the chieftainship or uses it to further his own ends. And he uses many other things besides. The chieftainship is only the beginning. The colonizer says, Your father is your father and nothing else, or your maternal grandfather. Don't mistake them for chiefs. You can go have yourself triangulated in your corner and place your house between those of your paternal and maternal kin. Your family is your family and nothing else. Sexual reproduction no longer passes through those points, although we rightly need your family to furnish a material that will be subjected to a new order of reproduction. Yes, then, an Oedipal framework is outlined for the dispossessed primitives. A shanty town, Oedipus. As we have seen, however, that the colonized remained a typical example of resistance to Oedipus. In fact, that's where the Oedipal structure does not manage to close itself, and where the terms of the structure remain stuck to the agents of oppressive social reproduction, either in a struggle or in complicity. The white man, the missionary, the tax collector, the exporter of goods, the person standing in the village who becomes the agent of administration, the elders who curse the white man, the young people who enter political struggle, etc. Both are true. The colonized resists Oedipalization, and Oedipalization tends to close around him again. To the degree there is Oedipalization, it is due to colonization, and it is necessary to add Oedipalization to all methods that Jalin would was able to describe in La Pa Blanche. The condition of the colonized can lead to a reduction in the humanization of the universe, so that any solution that is sought will be a solution on the scale of the individual and the restricted family with, by way of consequence, an extreme anarchy of disorder at the level of the collective, an anarchy whose victim will always be the individual, with the exception of those who occupy key positions in such a system, namely the colonizers, who, during the same period when the colonized reduced the universe, will tend to extend it. Oedipus is something like euthanasia within ethnocide. The more social reproduction escapes the members of the group, in nature and in extension, the more it falls back on them or reduces them to a restricted and neuroticized familial reproduction whose agent is Oedipus. All right, there is a lot uh, that seems to be unpacked here, and actually I'm not sure that it is a lot. Um, we, can go, we can go through it point by point, but I'm going to give a quick version of how I read this, and I think Will, I'm sure Varun, and I think everyone's going to have a, a different take, and I'd really love to get everyone's takes because this is... Uh, an extremely important par paragraph and long as shit. Um, to me, how I'm reading this is uh, through the sort of uh, lens of sort of actor network theory. The idea that um, we need to understand that the way that the psycho, the psychoanalytic world that the chieftain or K in this situation, who's the subject, uh, lives within. He lives outside of Oedipus. However, by being colonized, he actually has become, uh, he, he's actually become part, uh, affected by Oedipus, because Oedipus by nature is a voracious symbol-eating nightmare that constantly is sort of going into things. And uh, it, the paragraph is about that sort of journey between uh, the moment before Oedipus actually takes over things and it runs through all of the different things that can affect and how we see stuff, then how they see stuff, and then actually combined how we see stuff. And that's my quick analysis. Please, Varun, jump in. 
Yeah, We're sorry, I'm, I'm a bit uh, lost, but I, th I think, I mean, with regards to social, uh, I, I'd like to read, read the last line again, because I think that's actually the most interesting here. Oedipus is something like euthanasia with the ethnocide. The more social production escapes the members of the group in nature and in an extension, the more it falls back on them. Reduces them to a restricted and neuroticized family, a reproduction agent whose agent is Oedipus. I mean, so I, I think we're back at the uh, uh, falling back upon operation, and at least at least when I read the falling back operation, I, I read that as something retroactive, right? Where the body without organs comes back on uh, social production, and so I'm I, at least reading it as it's it's a sort of at least in this terms in, in in social production and stuff, it's a form of recoding. I mean, sorry, it's a form of, of coding, right? It's, or recoding in this regard in the sense that essentially, um, and I may be wrong on this, I'm maybe being very speculative here, but um, so essentially I, I think what social pr reproduction is, escapes members of the group in nature and an extension, you know, one way, and I, and I go again back to the line about in terms of their Nietzscheanism, they they want to get out of group dynamics, in my opinion. So I, that's why they bring up the whole idea of like uh, someone who lives outside the symbolic order and all that jazz. But this is essentially, I think, these are people who get pulled back in, right? That these are flows that get uh, coded back into. Into, into the repressive system in a way. Well, it's, it, the the line in here, I really there's a, there's a lot of lines, and I uh, I apologize if we should have broken this paragraph up. I see it as one long sort of vomit of a single thought because it just is continuous, and one relies so deeply on the on the previous and next sentence. But there's one in here I really like that an Oedipal framework is outlined for the dispossessed primitives, a shantytown Oedipus. Uh, the idea that there's sort of a uh, the colonizer's version of Oedipus that would enter into the the sort of pre uh, the, what is the term? They keep using the term primitive, and my brain just gets angry every time I want to say it. But the, the, the primitive society, the primitive world that these people live in, the Oedipal structure that actually has the ability to take its the production that is leaking out and actually turn it back onto them in a shantytown Oedipus, as they put it. The condition of the colonized can lead to a reduction in the, humanation of the humanization of the universe, so that any solution that is sought will be a solution on the scale of the individual and the restricted family. I think it's it's such a great way to look at it because it's again being very aware of uh when we look at these original situations we need to look understand the lens we're looking at it with we need to understand where those people are coming from what their interactions and social structure ultimately is and then at the same time understand that there is that connective tissue of effectively the socius of the future connecting back into the primitive socius uh that is doing that through oedipus in this situation No, I think that's right on. I, I just would add, like, part of this goes back to just the reality that, like, Oedipus wanders through discourse like a zombie, right? Um, you know, the very the very tools and entities that are engaging in this sort of, because this is all heavily based on, like, Calastre's responses to Levi-Strauss, and uh, what they're doing is uh, essentially saying in the same way that whoever walks into... Um, 
you know, Lacan's session, right, is already Oedipalized. Um, and whoever engages in this sort of uh, cultural anthropology will ascribe Oedipus <laughs> wherever they see it. And if not, right, they must find a way because their forms of social production are supposedly reliant on it. Yeah, but I think really also, uh, at least in my reading, I don't think they're really interested in, in a super anthropological project, right? Like, I don't think, I don't think they're really... No, uh, they're not anthropologists, but like, you read through this chapter, right, and it's reliant on contemporary anthropology at the time. So, like, yes, like, the, there, there is, like, a sociopolitical project here, too, like a, un, like a universal one, as you keep saying, I'm not going to... To, to to jump on on that train particularly because that's just not my reading um but but i i i think if we kind of ignore the implications of cultural anthropology here we, we might do it to our uh to our demise with this reading yeah it seems to me they're using anthropology to move toward that universal history or perhaps more appropriately called like a a historical genealogy so, like, I think you're both right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think I see it in a similar way, but I, I think, I mean, I, I, I think that they are much more concerned about uh, the unconscious in terms of their analysis. Well, I, I think for sure, for sure. And so, again, I'm going to actually go with Jack here, and I think you're both right. My, my, they're not here to become anthropologists or to get us to become that. They're utilizing this as a sort of allegory example to how Oedipus affects all of us at every single point in time uh, and how, how it, it, it dives its way into everything that it touches. And the, the primitive socius is just a perfect example of that because they are uh, not to not to utilize language that is a sort of noble savagery, but the, the idea of them being almost pure, there is no Oedipal uh, intention there. There's no, uh, no reality of that. They deal with the material realities around them in a very specific way where they're connected to the earth, things are what they are, or there's almost a concretization of everything. And there is no massive overcoating as there is in economics. So how quickly and how does Oedipus bleed in? And I mean, the next chapter, the next paragraph is, how are we to understand those who claim to have discovered Indian Oedipus or African Oedipus? Um, I think that this is, as they go forward, they're talking about how these things sort of bled into each other because the very nature of Oedipus as being this sort of thought zombie. I like that, that travels, like if the schizo is able to be the nomad traveling along the body without organs, Oedipus is like this fucking zombie that's able to eat anything when it comes to productive machines, social exactly. production. That, that, and what it shits out is it shits out the same size triangle that is Oedipus with everything it eats. And it's voracious and it never fucking stops. And, and I, th I think I think we're going to see a similar thing when they start talking about capitalism and stuff like that. Yes, no, for sure, for sure. Um, I think I think you see that also, at least in the way Marx describes uh, capitalism, the Communist Manifesto and stuff. So it's all it's all there. Actually, it it is really similar. Um, it is really similar. Um, but uh, let's uh, really quick. Um, I'm going to read uh, the the asterisk, which. Uh, uh, was at the bottom because it, it also uh, sort of adds a little bit color to this, and then we'll move on to the next paragraph. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, La Pain Blanche, uh, uh, the condition of the colonized, uh, continues on. Uh, Jean Lin analyzes the situation of those Indians 
whom the Capuchins persuaded to abandon the collective house in favor of small personal houses. In the collective house, the familial apartment and personal intimacy were based on a relationship with the neighbor defined as an ally, so that interfamilial relations were coextensive with the social field. In the new situation, on the contrary, and this is post-Oedipus coming in, essentially, in the new situation, on the contrary, there occurred an excessive ferment of the elements of the couple affecting the couple itself, and the children, so that the restrictive family closes into an expressive microcosm where each person reflects his own lineage, while the social and productive destiny escapes him more and more. For Oedipus is not only an ideological process, but the result of a destruction of the environment, the habitat, etc. Uh, so, uh, and I'm just going to continue right into the next uh, paragraph because it continues really nicely. Uh, how are we to understand those who claim to have discovered an Indian Oedipus or an African Oedipus? They are the first to admit that they re-encounter none of the mechanisms or attitudes that constitute our own Oedipus, our own presumed Oedipus. No matter, they say, the structure is there, although it has no existence whatever that is accessible to clinical practice, or that the problem, the point of departure, is indeed Oedipal, although the developments and the solutions are completely different from ours. They say that there is no end to the existence of Oedipus, when in fact it does not even have, apart from colonization, the necessary conditions to begin to exist. If that is true, that that if that is if it is true that thought can be evaluated in terms of the degree of edipalization, then yes, whites think too much. The competence, the honesty, and the talent of these authors, psychoanalysts specializing in Africa, are beyond question. But the same applies to them as to certain psychotherapists here. It would seem that they don't know what they are doing. We have psychotherapists who sincerely believe they are engaged in progressive work when they apply new methods for triangulating the child. But watch out. A structural Oedipus, and this time isn't, it isn't imaginary. The same is true of the psychoanalysts in Africa who apply a yoke of structural or problematical Oedipus in the service of their progressive intentions. There or here, it's the same thing. Oedipus is always colonization pursued by other means. It is the interior colony, and we shall see that even here at home, where we Europeans are concerned, it is our intimate colonial education. Uh, continuing basically what we said off the previous paragraph, uh, Oedipus being the fucking zombie that cannot stop. It yeah, is a uh, discourse zombie. <laughs> discourse zombie. I, I, Oedipal zombie, I, I like as a thought, because it helps, it, it's... The allegory always helps me understand a lot of these concepts, and that actually helps a lot more of this chapter kick into place for me. Oedipal zombie. It, it's part of the reason why, like, I love the the commentators that that use anti Oedipus at the level of the cultural, like Mark Fisher and those, is that, that they they use these tools uh, to, like, I think they he they he uses the the thing to describe capitalism uh, operating in the third uh, chapter of Anti-Oedipus. And that was one that I also liked as well. So I, I have the same issue with this text too, Brooks. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think I see two things in this uh, paragraph. Like, I think one, I think, I think we can take from a more contemporary approach when reading something like this. It's, you know, it's talking to someone else and they're just like, oh, it's, it, yeah, but who cares? You know, Oedipus is just... You know, it, this is all just like, you know, they just said like, 
the classic like uh, Freud was all bullshit, blah blah blah. You know, this is all who cares, right? I mean, it's, it's so there's a, there's and I think it's also harkened back in this in this paragraph in in the previous in like in, in, in I think in in the in chapter two they talked about how. You know, Oedipus is actually a lot more terrifying when people don't, when people think it's just ideology, when people think exactly. it's, it's when people think it's just not happening, right? It's not real. Because then what's happening is, you know, the material flow is being Oedipalized and, uh, and it's being Oedipalized while they're unconscious of it completely because, you know, they just said, oh, it's just ideology, blah, blah, blah. It's, it is not real. And essentially what happens is, you know, subjects are being Oedipalized. And another thing, a similar thing, I think they talk about, so another thing that we see in in that chapter also in, in terms of the incorrect use of the conjunctive synthesis and stuff, when they talk about like the revolutionary, right? They say that uh, someone, can, a subject can be consciously reactionary and unconsciously revolutionary. At the same time, the subject can also be, uh, the subject can also be uh, consciously re- revolutionary and unconsciously reactionary. So it's a really interesting, I think, dichotomy or even... Uh, yeah, I might, I might not like to say dichotomy because that's like a problem with people like Deleuze and stuff. But it's it's a really interesting relationship. I think what they were discard they when they describe the psychoanalyst in this regard, and also I mean that it also comes back to the whole idea of desiring your own repression, blah blah blah, that whole jazz. But it, it, I think it's 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 really interesting. I mean the way they uh, put, put the primacy to the unconscious in this regard. Yeah, I think it speaks to the, the the comparison between the medicine man using schizoanalysis and like the way that um, cultural anthropology or even like history at this time, contemporary for Deleuze and Guattari, as we said, has this tendency to read things through its own through its own milieu, so to impose Oedipus on that, um, and even begin a kind of like a, like a, I guess. A, kind of like lean on some of Varun's terms, like a hermeneutical Oedipalization or colonialization. But I think it's interesting, too, if you compare that with, like, what they write about the medicine man and uh, how, like, a, a kind of schizoanalysis seems to be present, where it is not only a question of discovering the pre-conscious investments of the social field by interest, but more profoundly, its unconscious investments by desire, such as they pass by way of the sick person's marriages, his position in the village, and all the positions of the chief, lived in intensity within the group. One thing that interests me in, so far in this section is like, and I think we talked about this earlier, is like uh, sort of like an ethicality involved with territorialization, right? Because even that sounds kind of painful. Uh, but that being said, it's interesting that the schizoanalysis here seems to directly deal and engage like uh, the breaks and flows that would come with a with a territorialization, and to look at like how the person's moving throughout that structure, how the structure is engaging them as well. Because the, in that example, it seemed like the the person who's sick is not even remotely at a full fault for it. So it's interesting to take that position on schizoanalysis and compare it with like trying to psychoanalyze uh, African people. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, anyone want to read the next paragraph? I'm happy to. It's not a problem. All right. How are we to understand the phrases with which MC and Edmund Ortugua, I'm not going to pronounce his name, whatever, conclude their book? 
Illness is considered as a sign of an election, of a special attention coming from supernatural powers, or as a sign of an aggression of a magical nature, an idea that is difficult to express in profane terms. Analytic psychotherapy can intervene only starting from the moment a demand can be formulated by the subject. Our entire research was therefore conditioned by the possibility of establishing a psychoanalytic domain. When a subject adhered fully to the traditional norms and had nothing to say in his own name, he allowed himself to be taken into care of the traditional therapists and the, famili and the familial group, or into that of the medical practice of medicines. At times, the fact that he wanted to speak to us about traditional treatments corresponded to a beginning of psychotherapy and became for him a means of situating himself personally in his own society. At other times, the analytic dialogue was able to unfold to a greater extent. And in this case, the Oedipal problem tended to assume its diachronic dimension, causing the generation gap to appear. Why think that supernatural powers and magical aggressions constitute a myth that is inferior to Oedipus? On the contrary, is it not true that they move desire in the direction of more intense and more adequate investments of the social field in its organization as well as disorganizations? Meyerfortes, at least, showed Job's place beside Oedipus, and what entitles one to determine that the subject has nothing to say in his own name, so long as he adheres to the traditional norms. Doesn't the Indembu cure? demonstrate just the opposite? Could it not be said that Oedipus is also a traditional norm? Our own, to be exact. How can one say that Oedipus makes us speak in our own name, when one also goes on to say that its resolution teaches us the incurable inadequacy of being and universal castration? And what is this demand that is invoked to justify Oedipus? It goes without saying, the subject demands and redemands daddy mommy. But which subject, and in what state? Is that the means to is that the means to situate oneself personally in one's own society? And which society? The neo-colonized society that is constructed for the subject and that finally succeeds in what colonization was only able to outline? An effective reduction of the forces of desire to Oedipus to a father's name in the grotesque triangle? One thing I will say, they've basically mentioned the name of the father four or five times in here in really shitty ways and i just would love to have been like watching lacan as he read this uh, like just shitting all over him um i don't have any major things to add here uh in short basically uh they are taking the concept of oedipus and they're taking it sort of against uh, what we would see as primitive spells and magic and rituals and saying, what well, this is ours. And it's actually a really, really terrifying one. And it and the ones before also organized desire. They organized, you know, the break apart of things. But uh, ours tends to take over. Any other thoughts quickly? I think you nailed it. All right. Uh, a, a lot of this, I think we're going to do, uh, there's a there's a handful of paragraphs I know we're going to stop and have long discussions on, but I think a lot of this is, again, very concretized and uh, very direct. So we'll do quick summaries as we sort of charge through. Uh, Brooks, there's a question for you in the chat. Oh, no. Oh, no, a Lacan question. Exactly. 
Uh, I, I forgot the name of the father. When I, when I was reading about the phallus and the Oedipus complex, it's, it's an annoying sort of concept. It's, it's not, it's, so it's not, it's not literally the father's name, but it's, no, it's, it's not. My, dad, my dad's name is Randy. And at no point would Lacan go, cool. Uh, well, we're going to talk about Randy as the name of the father. It's, uh, it's the, the support of the, it's the symbolic function of the concept yeah. of the father. That's actually the entirety of, of, I think when it comes to that concept, the, the, I, it's a perfect example of the Lacanian project is that sort of uh, creating kind of this, uh, to, oh, don't dumb it down, don't dumb it down, I'll fucking kill you. But this creation of a more abstract version of these already operating concepts within psychoanalysis. At least that's what I get from looking awry. I'm not a Lacanian, not schooled in that whatsoever. Yeah, I know, I know, I know Herms is big into Lacan, though. I think I was hoping he could help us out a bit. Ooh, let's see. Do we have Hermes here? Yeah, hey. Uh, I, I just popped in, so I, didn't, I wasn't able to hear what D&G were saying about the name of the father. Is there a Well, they, they basically just, no, they basically shit on it over and over and over, more as a side reference, but we had a question of literally what name of the father means, because that adds context to why they're shitting on it. Like, they don't say anything specifically as a breakdown or a critique. They literally just go, what is it, the name of the father? <laughs> and then move on to the next thing. So, uh, Yeah, I can, I can say what I know about it. I'm not like a Lacanian expert. I've only read like a few seminars. But I, I did the, the one, so seminar three, uh, the psychoses, uh, presents the name of the father as uh, the the signifier that keeps the signifying chain moving, um, that it provides a bounds to signification. Um, and he uh, makes it, he says it's like the marriage ring, but it's also uh, the uh, know of the father in a sense, but that's, that's not quite it. The, the root of the name of the father is that it's the signifier that gives a bounds to signification. That way, the signifying chain can keep moving along. And um, there's and there's three three levels of the father: um, the symbolic, the imaginary, and the real. Because everything with Lacan has fucking every level that there is. Uh, yeah, and so it, it's a it's a it's an incredibly complex like thing. If you really want to get into it, there's an excellent book called Name of the Father uh, about Lacan. I have it on my bookshelf. I'll find the uh, author. Uh, but it's yeah. a it's a really uh, again we're talking about uh, them shooting on the concept of just in general anything Oedipal. But specifically here, the to me uh, the way that the symbolic father sort of plays a role is they're the ones who give. Uh, credence to the idea of how the symbolic order works and that if you have a good father you will understand how the world works and you'll behave well inside of it and you'll know your place within the social order and a shitty father which i think uh Zizek called the anal father because that's not an awkward phrasing at all um is the opposite of that and actually uh, is what ultimately will put you into psychosis if I'm not wrong there, Hermes, like that's one of the driving factors. Yeah. Um, and then, in a name of a, the name of a father can be like a, uh, like a, like a meta myth, like, like Christianity can serve as being the name of a father. Yes. Um, yeah. It allows you to symbolize events. Um, and also uh, an important part about the, Oedipal thing uh, is so what Lacan does 
is he says that it's not just the parents, like events in general can serve the function of father or mother, whether, um, you know, it's the, uh, it's uh, whether an event is prohibitive or, uh, you know, uh, provides that impossible jouissance uh, being the feminine side. So specifically uh, to quote from uh, Wikipedia, why not? Uh, This paternal function imposes the law and regulates desire within the Oedipal complex, intervening in the imaginary dual relationship between mother and child to introduce a necessary symbolic distance between them. This is uh, the name of the father is where the Oedipal. uh, Yeah, I want to fuck my mom. No, you can't. I'm your dad. That's the that moment is when it's like, oh, you're you've symbolically been given that. Here's how things work. Yeah. And and so he does the the Lacanian play on words, the non do pair. Right. And uh, he, he says those that don't buy into the symbolic fiction err most. And I don't know about that, but that's what he says. And it seems like that's what uh, D&G are actually railing against is the uh, symbolic fiction. Very much. I mean, a lot of Lacan stuff is about the regulation of desire, which I think they're just patently against as a concept. Let's see. Anything else while I'm reading through? No. There, there's a few good books. I'll, I'll link to, uh, uh, I'll toss them in the chat in a moment. Give me two seconds. Uh, talk talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, I think the Van Hout uh, against adaptation is like, supposed to be, I think, it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's a lot, actually quite harder than Bruce Fink's guide, but I think it's supposed to be a good authoritative source, at least on the, on the early thought with regards to the Acree and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I've yeah, been I've reading been... it, and it's very good. And uh, real quick, it's, of course, uh, Bruce Fink's translation of On the Names of the Father. Uh, Bruce Fink is the guy for that. So, worth worth reading. I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, going over this as we talk about other stuff. But uh, anything else on this uh, section, on this program? Yes, Alyosha has a question. Um, they ask... Would D and G say there are no bounds to signification? And then Alyosha expands to say, uh, I just mean in the idea that there's a master signifier that moves anything versus signifiers producing endlessly without meaning. I mean, I think with regard, so in, 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 you know, in, in Lacan's case, the signifier of the unconscious that sort of structures the whole thing is like the point de capiton, right? So for Lacan, it'll be the phallus or the non-penis, as he says, that acts as the signifier. But I think for Deleuze and Gattari, it, it has to do with, so it, it, this gets a lot more complex. Now we're dealing with something much more material rather than, you know, something ideal as a signifier. So... And by ideal, I mean like, you know, mental stuff. So if if uh, if with regards to the uh, Lozenkatari, I think there's this. Uh, it, it depends on on the extraction of the surplus value of the code, and uh, the, the 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 functioning of the body without organs within the system, right? Of whether it's attracting or repulsing. Yeah. 
wouldn't something like a master signifier be like a third par- uh, third synthesis paralogism though? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Master signifier. No, I, I don't. How, how does, I, I don't think, what do you mean by, it? but I mean, it's like despotic signifier is the, is the paralogism, right? Where you get like the, fa- the phallus for lack for the laws and theory, like it's, it's going to be a, a signal. It's going to be a paralogism, right? Cause it's, it's extracting, it's, it's basically taking up everything into one extraction. I mean, it's sort, of, it's sort of, it's 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 binding everything up into one locale almost. I, I, I'm actually going to jump in because I think uh, the next paragraph is perfect for this. We tend to do this. I do like that we tend to have discussions where it's like, oh, actually, the next paragraph addresses greatly the great signifier and the dead father and so many symbols inside of that that uh, it would be worth going through uh, and then continuing the discussion afterwards. Um, uh, Anyone have any final thoughts before I dive in, though? All right. Yeah. No, go ahead. I mean, sort of off topic, but I mean, like, Gattari solo thought, the solo thought, the 80s with, like, schizoanalytic cartographies. I mean, what he started doing was he started taking all these signifiers. He created, like, biological signifiers, too, right, with hormonal transfers. Um, so you have, like, asemiotic chains that are hormonal transfers. And then you still have the asignifying chains. And then you and then you also have then you also have diagrammatic diagrammatic recordings, right? So it's like they, that that goes into modeling that you have models that uh, that record as, as functions. So it gets it gets it starts getting really crazy if you go into the whole thing in the eighties with the rest of thousand plateaus as well. Cool. Let us return to the well known and inexhaustible debate between culturalists and orthodox psychoanalysts. Is Oedipus universal? Is Oedipus the great paternal Catholic symbol, the meeting place of all churches? The debate began between Malinowski and Jones. It continued between Cardner and Fromm on one side and Roheim and the other. It is still pursued between ethnologists and certain disciples of Lacan, those who offered not only an Oedipalizing interpretation of Lacan's doctrine, but also an ethnographic extension to this interpretation. On the side of the universal, there are two poles, one outdated, it would seem, that makes of Oedipus an original affective constellation, and that constitutes an extreme position arguing that Oedipus was a real event whose effects were transmitted through phylogenetic heredity, and on the other pole, which makes Oedipus into a structure, a pole whose extreme position argues the possibility of discovering the structure in fantasy in relation to biological prematuration and neoteny. Two very different conceptions of the limit, one as an original matrix, the other as structural function. But in both these senses of the universal, we are invited to interpret, since the latent presence of Oedipus appears only through its patent absence, understood as an effect of psychic repression. Or better still, since the structural constant is discovered only through its imaginary variations, attesting to the need for the symbolic foreclosure, the father is an empty position. Oedipus's universal recommences the old metaphysical operation that consists in interpreting negation as a deprivation, as a lack, the symbolic lack of the dead father or the great signifier. Interpretation is our modern way of believing and of being pious. Already, Geza Roheim proposed organizing primitives into a series of variables converging towards the structural neotenic constant. It was he who said, in all seriousness, that the Oedipus complex was not to be found if it wasn't looked for. 
and that one wasn't looking if one hadn't had oneself analyzed. And that is why your daughter is mute, which is to say, the tribes, daughters of the ethnologist, do not say Oedipus, although it is Oedipus who makes them speak. Roheim added that it was ridiculous to think that the Freudian theory of censorship depended on the repressive regime in the empire of Franz Josef. He did not seem to see that Franz Josef was not a pertinent historical break, but that perhaps the oral, the written, or even the capitalist civilizations were such breaks within the nature of social repression, and the meaning and scope of psychic repression would vary. Yeah, I think, it's a, you know, if you remember correctly, uh, psychic repression is almost like, it's a, so where Freud pre, pre, uh, put the primacy to uh, psychic repression, that doesn't get very primacy to social repression. And, you know, they're not the first people to do that, actually. The first people to do that was, was Wilhelm Reich, right? Except Wilhelm Reich, they say, had a dualism. He had a dualism in the sense that he divided desire and production and social production rather than keeping it into one sort of production, which caused him to not have a full, uh, full enough analysis. And, 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 and so... If psychic repression is the almost instrument of social repression, uh, the, the task of uh, psychic repression, it causes us to desire more social repression. And, and in this case, we can understand social repression, I think, through, the, I don't know if it's correct, but through the recording of the prohibition of incest as a representation that, you know, that, that causes the guilt of desire to be snared in this specific location. And, you know, so it turns into, so that's what I wanted, even, even though it was the prohibition, right? There's nothing, I'd, and there's no real flow desire, but the flows were guided due to various forms of coding where coding decided to go and decided, oh, so, you know, that's what you wanted as, as they quote directly. You know, I, I think a good example, at least uh, Buchanan gives this for the example of how the prohibition of in, incest works as actually causing desire to desire incest is in the sense that, you know, he gives the example of uh, couples who were, uh, at least back at, back at, I, I'm not American, but I think back in the United States, there was, there was a great uh, taboo placed on sex before marriage and stuff. And so, uh, and so what happened actually, uh, it, 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 but it's from that taboo that the desire to have sex before marriage actually increased in a way. So, you know, it's from the taboo that the possibility actually becomes actualized. <laughs> And it is, except in terms of uh, the prohibition of incest, it's terms of guilt where a desire feels guilty and it gets turned in or binded into something like that's what I wanted. I also think it's really important just uh, because uh, it's a thing they continually go over, but they mention it very specifically here that uh, Oedipus is universal recommences the old metaphysical operation that consists in interpreting negation as a deprivation, as a lack. And as we know, don't believe in lack. Desire is not an imaginary force that is based on lack. I think they could not say that more times uh, and be more clear on that. And a lot of uh, what they're talking about is that moment of symbolic foreclosure uh, that happens within Oedipus and that uh, the lack is the thing that drives us, the production of a lack. Yes, thank you. Uh, it, it, lack can be created through production, but lack doesn't drive desire. Is, is... Am I wrong on that? Am I misreading? If I remember correctly, like they also say that it's it's a paralogism of the first synthesis to understand lack as a kind of like absence or like a zero sort of thing. Rather, the the, the first syllogism 
understands that if there is a kind of lack, it is a deprivation. On this this paragraph, they talk also about, and I I don't know uh, how relevant it is to necessarily our discussion understanding of it because it seems like this is a very specific. The, the first half of this paragraph is a very specific call out on some very specific things happening around Oedipus within the psychoanalytic community, uh, given Lacan and given everyone else. I think that's the, all their references that they're making. Um, the idea here that they really want to get at is that people are talking about universality of Oedipus as on the one side being purely structural, that this is how reality is built. And then on the other side, actually saying that, no, this is a, a real event. These are real things. It's a thing that happens and is part of our entire setup. So the ability for us to uh, instead step back from that, and again, they should on Lacan uh, pretty significantly, and instead talk about uh, sort of the retconning of everything via Oedipus. Uh, feels feels more like uh, retconning might be the best word to use for Oedipus in this. Yeah, it's oh, so that's what I wanted, right? It's a retroactive yeah. sort of application. Uh, retconning is the, if, if you're not familiar, pop culture term for when uh, someone uh, decides to change the storyline of a universe and uh, they retcon that the George Lucas goes back and makes it so it's not, it's Greedo who shoots first, not Han. That retcons things. Uh, it's a good term. Uh, think uh, for this specifically because it does uh, in its event nature uh, Oedipus being introduced sort of changes everything as it fits its own lens through the past I did really like that line in, uh, in t about interpretation which now that I've looked up I might not be able to find um Here we go. But the, in those senses of the universal, we are invited to so-called interpret, since the latent presence of Oedipus appears only through its patent absence, understood as an effect of psychic repression, where they go on to say, interpretation is our modern way of believing and of being pious. Which, like, I, I kind of read, too, as, like, there's a danger in interpretation by means of trying to use some sort of, uh, shall we say, master signifier or that, by which to understand all things and therefore like preserve the, the uh, signifier there. All right. Uh, I'll continue to the next paragraph. This story of psychic repression is quite complicated. I think we've learned that by now. Things would be simpler if the libido or the affect were repressed in the most general sense of the word, suppressed, inhibited, transformed, at the same time as the supposed Oedipal representation. But such is not the case. Most ethnologists have clearly noted the sexual nature of affects in the public symbols of primitive societies, and this nature remains integrally lived by the members of these societies, even though they have not been psychoanalyzed, and in spite of the displacement of the representation. As Leach says, apropos of the sex-hair relationship, displaced phallic symbolism is very common, but the phallic origin of the symbolism is not repressed. Must it be said that primitives repress the representation and keep the affect intact? Uh, I would love someone to explain that sentence to me later, by the way. And would the contrary be true in our case? In the patriarchal organization where the representation would remain clear, 
but with the affect suppressed, inhibited, and transformed. No, in fact. Psychoanalysis tells us that we, too, repress the representation, and everything tells us that we, too, often keep the full sexuality of the effect. We know perfectly well what it is about without having been psychoanalyzed, but what enables one to speak of an Oedipal representation that would be the object of repression? Is it because incest is prohibited? We always fall back on this pale rationale. Incest is desired because it is prohibited. The prohibition of incest would therefore imply an Oedipal representation, and it would be born of the repression of this representation of the latter's return. Jesus Christ, is that a sentence? I'm going to reread it. The prohibition of incest would therefore imply an Oedipal representation, and it would be born of the repression of this representation and of the latter's return. Now the opposite is clearly the case. Not only does Oedipal representation presuppose the prohibition of incest, but it is not even possible to say that the representation is born of the prohibition or results from it. <laughs> well, let's let's go with a let's break this down. I'm going to ask questions because it's uh, yeah, this, go for it. This paragraph for sure loses me just in general because there's a lot of psychoanalytic talk uh, that uh, I don't get. So let's let's say um, okay. Must uh, the the question I asked uh, would the contrary be true in our case in the patriarchal organization where the representation would remain clear, but with the affect suppressed, inhibited, and transformed? Can someone explain to me just in general? I think I think the way I'm actually confused on the context in this case, but I think affectivities with regards to intensities, right? In terms of when they talk about, I think you see this most clearly in the paralogism of the conjunctive synthesis, but when they talk about, you know, the schizo who uh, uh, he hallucinates uh, delirium, and in this case, by hallucinating delirium, rather than identifying with the, um, he identifies, so he identifies with the intensities, right, rather than, than anything else, and it's, it's that affectivity of, you know, I'm, I, I feel uh, like I'm becoming, I don't know, becoming woman, or they say, uh, becoming Negro in that case where he identifies with uh, with these sort of affectivities and that's when the name comes in, right? And that's the whole nomadism that goes along with that. But the whole idea is that the schizo identifies with the affectivity of intensities and the name is sort of that sort of signifier, I think. But I'm not, I'm not sure how it's been used in this context. So the last sentence is, is the one I... Like, it feels like, I've just reread this a second time. I hate this paragraph. Uh, the last sentence, I'm going to say that I would love to just spend some time breaking down, and I'm going to ramble, and uh, Will, Muskie, anyone, please, uh, we would love all of you to jump in. Um, not only does the Oedipal representation presuppose the prohibition of incest, but it is not even possible to say that the representation is born of the prohibition or results from it. So. The last sentence implies or is saying that the previous paragraph or even leading up to this point is that uh, saying that Oedipus is a representation by nature presupposes that we don't, we cannot fuck our moms, that there is a prohibition, that these things are intertwined. Again, talking about sort of retconning. Uh, if, if we want to sit there and say Oedipus exists, Oedipus is a real thing. We can't, you, it's because we want to fuck our moms, we're not allowed to fuck our moms. Their second half of that sentence says, it's not even possible to say the representation is born of the prohibition or results from it. 
So because the, for fuck's sake, because Oedipus as a concept is created, by creating the concept, we're saying that there is a prohibition against fucking our moms, right? At the same time, uh, because the representation has retconned this, it's actually impossible for us to go say that this, this ever existed at a real point, a concrete material point in time, we can't say. We can't say that this ever actually fucking happened. We can't say that there's a prohibition. We can't say this results from the prohibition because of the fact that it is retconning everything to this. That's how I'm reading that last sentence. Yeah, you want me to try and uh, break this down with some terminology then? Sure, but I, but I, I think, can I just do like a, like a sued sort of like <laughs> reading of this? Like, it's because it's like impossible, right? Like, in this framework, it's like literally impossible for that prohibition at any point in time to have been made. Does that make sense? Like, it doesn't even make a hundred percent sense to me, but that's at least what I'm getting here is that the act of the prohibition can't be determined because, like, the very act within this triangle is impossible within itself. Like, you, you cannot fuck your mother in this in this context of of the Oedipal triangle because like the very purpose of those roles in that tri- uh, uh, is that this is actually like an impossibility and it becomes more clear like later and explicitly stated that that action under this framework like is semiotically impossible yeah i, I think so uh, with regards the repressing representation in this case is is it's almost like the signifier of the prohibition and the signifiers of incest and the, then i mean they talk about it in the last chapter we were told about a displaced representative which was uh you know it's the, it's the, that's the distorted image it's desire as functioning as desire for the mother desire to fuck the mother and kill the father and in uh and then there's the third term, which is actually the referent, which refers to uh, desire, and it's you know in its true germinal force or its true desire and production force, where where it, where it's uh, you know where it's where it's, uh, it's 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 that essential molecular nature to it. Uh, but I'm a bit lost now because so they say that now the opposite is clearly the case. Not only does the Oedipus representation presuppose the prohibition of incest, yeah. So I, I can agree with that because that's we saw that. You know, Oedipus is not something ingrained, right? It's caused by something from outside or in the social field, in this case, the prohibition of incest. But it's not even possible to say that the representation is born of the prohibition or results from it. So, I mean, so they, but then they clearly say that they can't say that the uh, that, that it is the that it's the prohibition. See, it's, it's, it's almost very confusing because uh, it not only does the Oedipal representation presuppose the prohibition of incest, so they're saying... Uh, it's it, it, if if we have Oedipus desire, then we must have a prohibition of incest that we saw from you know social repression. But it's not even possible to say that the repress that the representation is born of the prohibition or results from it. So it's they're saying also that maybe the I mean are, is, am, I, am I correct to say that they're saying that the prohibition may not be the cause? It's almost like they have a contradiction there. It, it reads to me as though they're saying that um, that's almost the wrong question. Uh, that uh, it's not so much that the is there was the prohibition the cause was it not it's as I'm reading that last sentence uh, it's not possible for us to actually say that 
that we use these terms as sort of uh, conversation pieces, but it is not possible to say that the representation Oedipus is born of the prohibition or results from it. That because of the fact, again, the, the prior line, um, not only does Oedipal representation presuppose the prohibition of incest, uh, by having Oedipus just as a thing, the way that it is built into its own structure, uh, you cannot have incest. Like, that's the nature of Oedipus at a basic level. It's one of the core things. So because that structure is something itself that prohibits and has it built in, we actually can't go back and say which came first. It's a chicken or egg question. Uh, they, they, they both effectively came about at the same time. Yeah, but I think, you know, they'd be fairly against to say that Oedipus came first, right? Because that's, you know, one of the main theses of the books. They can never say Oedipus came first in this regard. Because that will imply that psychic oppression is pri- is prime, is, 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 is prime, is more, is, is before social oppression. I don't, I don't think they're saying Oedipus came first. And I don't think they're saying, I, I think they're saying that you can't say. That, 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 that it's not them saying decisively one way or another. I mean, that's how that sentence reads. It's not even possible to say the representation is born the prohibition or results from it. Uh, so why they write it like this? It's almost like they're doing some Derrida-style satire or something. It's almost like uh, Kierkegaard taking jabs at Hegel, right? Like, like writing in an intentionally obtuse way. But no, I think I think Brooks got it. Is that uh, an apology? Is if you can hear like the air conditioning in the back, and whoever has to edit this later, you can just delete whatever I say. Um, it, I, I think Brooks has it. Like so throughout this, like he's saying, "Oh, I don't get it. Please explain it to me." But like, I think you're you're the one here that that at least has gotten closest uh, to this. It just feels so, and we can continue on, but it's uh, instead of them saying uh, one thing came before the other, it's very much we've gotten to a point because of how Oedipus works, because it is this zombie that eats and if a zombie eats and shits out triangles, can we say that it ever ate a triangle? Like it, it's not possible because everything <laughs> it shits out is triangles. So it's, it's, there's no way for us to really know. Uh, I'm actually going to read, because the next paragraph uh, gets into this as well. I read ahead a little bit. Um, because it, they, and there's no way we're getting through the section fully, so we're going to be taking a break at some point here, because uh, uh, there's no way we read through this whole thing. But I think we're going to get a, a lot deeper into uh, Oedipus versus incest and where it sits. Uh, Adopting Malinowski's arguments, Reich added a profound remark. Desire is all the more Oedipal as the prohibitions are aimed, not simply at incest, but at all other types of sexual relations, blocking the other paths. In a word, the repression of incest is not born of a repressed Oedipal representation any more than it provokes this repression. But, and this is something altogether different, The general social repression, psychic repression system, gives rise to an Oedipal image as a disfiguration of the repressed. The fact that this image in turn finally suffers a repression, that it comes to take the place of the repressed or of the thing that is effectively desired insofar as sexual repression is directed at something other than incest, such is the long history of our society. But the repressed is not first of all the Oedipal representation. What is repressed is desiring production. It is the part of this production that does not enter into social production or reproduction. 
It is what would introduce disorder and revolution into the socius, the non-coded flows of desire. The part that passes, on the contrary, from desiring production to social production, forms a direct sexual investment of this social production, without any repression of a sexual nature of the symbolism and the corresponding affect. And above all, without any reference to the Oedipal representation that could be held to be originally repressed or structurally foreclosed. The animal in us is not merely the object of a pre-conscious investment determined by interest, but the object of a libidinal investment of desire that only secondarily derives an image of the father from desiring production. The same holds true for the libidinal investment of food, wherever a fear of going hungry is evident or a pleasure at not being hungry, and this investment refers only secondarily to an image of the mother. Uh, to read the, it's, I'm just going to read the asterisk while we're there. In his study of the Marquesa Islands, Adam Cardiner has convincingly demonstrated that role of a collective or economic elementary anxiety that, even from the viewpoint of the unconscious, does not allow itself to be reduced to the familial relationship with the mother. We have already seen how the prohibition of incest referred, not to Oedipus, but to the non-coded flows that constitute desire, and to their representative, the, int the intense pre-personal flow. As for Oedipus, it is another way of coding the uncodable, of codifying what eludes the codes, or of displacing desire and its object, a way of entrapping them. So, as for Oedipus, it is another way of coding the uncodable, of codifying what eludes the codes, or of displacing desire in such a way, a way of entrapping them. So, I mean, in terms of coding, you know, for Oedipalized desire, at least on the level of the body without organs, uh, you know, the ambivalence of the body without organs arises in the fact that it will record, record uh, you know, at least if, 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 if it's not, <laughs> it, it will record those uh, repressing representations as well. Or, or unless the schizo falls on the full body without organs, which is like, you know, they describe it as autism. But uh, as, as for uh, Oedipus, it, it is the case that, uh, I mean, in, in the way that they describe it here, Oedipus has to be uh, recorded onto desire to, to, to uh, you know, it has to be a code in a way so that, because, you know, coding is the operation that moves the flows in a certain way. Coding, does, so the body without organs, remember, it doesn't produce or doesn't disproduce, doesn't, you know, disproduce. It, it just, it just, you know, nudges and it tells them where to go, right? So it tells, it, so it's from the, it's from the Oedipal code that, the desire knows to go in a such in specific way. I think that's what they mean by trapping. I think so too. I, I, to, to use this sort of river and water metaphors again, um, they're talking about uncoded flows. If we talk about uh, river has just going along and part of it is as pressure is being able to be used directly for production. I have a, I have a mill and a water wheel and that's how I'm using that. The rest of that water is still traveling quite powerfully. And it, desire operates the same way. It's it's going. Desire is charging ahead. And by being able to say, oh, actually, here's Oedipus, and we throw the triangle down, or the Oedipal zombie, or however we want to say it. But we, we, we begin to code that river, but we do it in this way of repression, which is what they're talking about. That uh, I almost sit Oedipus down in the flow. And I'm stopping the uncoded part. I'm stopping the part that isn't directly productive, that is able to actually drive revolutionary emancipatory thought and, and, and action. Uh, they say that very directly here a couple times. 
um, which I really, really like. Um, uh, to to just reread, where was it? Where was it? Crap. Um, uh, what is repressed is desiring production. It is the part of this production that does not enter into social production or reproduction. It is what would introduce disorder and revolution into the socius, the non-coded flows of desire. Uh, and by saying, oh, actually, just so you know, those uncoded flows, it's that you want to fuck your mom, and here's Oedipus, and here's all of it. And it's that they almost happen simultaneously by placing it, uh, the Oedipal triangle, the mold, into those flows. At the same time, we create the desire for incest. At the same time, we prohibit it. This is how we turn those those things into moment. Is that a fair... Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's great. In fact, that's helpful for me. <laughs> I, I'm, I've been a little bit lost on, on this section here, too. It, it only gets worse <laughs> from here. Um, but yeah. Well, it's, it's the, the interesting part here I liked is um, the, the part that passes, on the contrary, from desiring production to social production forms a direct sexual investment of the social production without any repression of sexual nature of the symbolism in the corresponding affects, and above all, without any reference to Oedipal representation that be held to be originally repressed or structurally foreclosed. There's a, uh, again, the desire for them, uh, everything is sexual. At the same time, it's all also, like, it, it's not directly sexual in the way that we may mean it, but there's a there's a libidinal power, a sexual procreative power behind all desire. I really yeah, like no, that. there's there's libidinal processes everywhere, right? Like the famous quote from this text is the way the bourgeoisie fucks the proletariat, right? So so you know we're we're starting to edge our way closer and closer to kind of a schizoanalytic view of material of a materialist psychiatry, but uh, too like the the Wilhelm Reich. Uh, Part of this it will remain active and and uh, critiqued throughout from here on uh, from from here from here on out. Yeah, and uh, really quick, Big Bud Bart McCoy. Uh, I'm going to end up. I'm I'm I've made a note. I need to write up like a little essay on this zombie because I really like the idea of the Oedipal zombie. Um, the idea is Oedipus itself is voracious and never never full, able to basically take in any symbiotics, any symbols, any desire production any uncoded flows it can take them out and as it does take them it shits out triangles and the triangle is oedipus every all the desires it takes in it can find a way to mash them into whatever form it needs in order to make them oedipalized and uh the question and, and in a sense like lacan makes it impossible to kill right so, yes. like in, in in a certain way, that the, the the Freudian representation is one is one that's easily uh, e easily denied in, in contemporary uh, social constructions, or at least like so we think, right? Um, uh, but with Lacan, the, the the creation of of this symbolic order makes it really, really, really difficult to do away with. And so, when you have if you have this thing that's basically eating uh, uncoded flows and turning them and forming in them into basically triangle shits uh, of Oedipus, at any point, if you were to actually just sit there and go, okay, so did the did the zombie actually ever eat an Oedipal symbol? Like, did it ever 
before it digested, did it ever have something that was actually shaped in the shape of a triangle? You'd never be able to know because in the moment of the zombie eating and digesting, it turns everything into triangles. So therefore it never stops and you're never able to know. Who is patient zero of kind of the Oedipal contagion is kind of part of the the greatest issue that, um, that those at Guitari have here is, is that it can be whatever you want it to be, baby, is that it can always reformulate and, and, and push you back in to this triangle. I'm reminded of the comic where like the little blob tries to get out of its little square and then it's punched back in, right? There's a kind of an inescapability uh, in psychoanalysis um, beyond just like the old fashioned, like Karl Pop critiques of Freud or whatever. But yeah. So can I ask a question? Please, please. I, ma- I managed to get my mic working here. So I was saying in the chat, like, is it, is it what they're saying that <laughs> incest is not, that the desire for it is not a product of an incest prohibition because what is prohibited or repressed isn't in fact incest, but just any uncoded, uncoded flow of desire. And for them, all flows of desire are inherently libidinal, including what we've talked about in the past, like the schizophrenic kind of whole experience of their flows of desire, which normally wouldn't be read that way in classical psychoanalysis. So like at the end of that paragraph, when they say uh, it's not even possible to say that the representation is born of the prohibition or results from it, I think, is it that the reason we were getting confused there is because it seems like they were saying the opposite when what they're really saying was like, it's wrong to assume the prohib- the pro- the prohibition is any kind of originary act when when you put it in this like larger scope it's really just i mean it's like an anti-production or you know the, the, that pr- prohibition isn't originary towards anything else it's actually a, a quite later stage in this process that is trying to repress and respond to uncoded flows does that make sense i, I actually think what you're saying to my reading is spot on uh that this this excess uncoded flow by nature is sexual is libidinal and uh therefore it's got some emancipatory revolutionary quality as it gets going the need that we have the need that oedipus has by attaching to it uh, basically says oh yeah all of this sexual desire it's actually because you want to fuck your mom and you're a gross person for doing that that's a gross thing that you want to do so you're bad and this this repression sort of takes place that is necessary inside of the oedipal uh, uh triangle and so that's essentially what they're saying is that uh it, it is what is i think we're saying the same thing Alyosha. It, yeah, I think so. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it because I think it, it, it. I was also really, really stuck on that paragraph. It's, but it's, I it's not that the desire it. emerges from the prohibition. I, I really, I the more I read and reread that, um, the more I read and reread that last sentence of the previous thing. It's not so much we. They use the term um, malformed uh, and a malformation, and that it disfigures desire. It's. Think of it uh, almost like a Frankenstein kind of thing, where it's Frankenstein's not a man anymore, but is it a man? Which came first? It's it's like no. The reality is here that the Oedipal shape uh, by placing it and putting it in the way of the libidinal energies and desires that people have, it malforms everything into making us think that these are desires. Uh, I don't. I've never had the desire to fuck my mom. Sorry, mom. I don't know if you're listening. Um, I, it's not a thing I've ever had, and I think most people generally don't sort of live with that. But it is a—it's a drive of a way that we make people think that we want to do that. Is that making sense? 
So it's like it's like a false it's like a false desire. I don't know how else to put that. Yeah, yeah, but the very problem is that it it becomes actualized. That's the problem. It becomes it it does become actualized, and they talk about that a little bit. It's through this through the continuous repression, then it becomes. But it's not so much that hey, Oedipus exists, and therefore the desire is created. The desire didn't exist before it, and the desire doesn't exist because of it. They kind of come in a package. And it's because sort of at the moment of, you know, the repression of these flows, uh, Oedipus creates all of these other things. And we have to have somewhere to put the sexual energy. And Oedipus says, that's where we put it. Don't yeah. forget, forget I said anything about Frankenstein's monster. It was a shitty allegory. I'm, my brain's back dealing with zombie shits. Yeah, I think... Uh... You know, I think I think at least what they're talking about now when they talk about, oh, there's something, you know, there's something even more than the prohibition of incest as Alyosha brought up as well. I, th I think what, what we're going to start realizing is it's it's starting to become a much deeper genealogy. And it's going to I think it's going to start going into like guilt and debt relations with regards to anti-production and stuff like that. All right. Um, I think we continue. Um. Yeah, I'll go ahead and keep reading then. <sighs> this is going to be a long section. Culturalists, that's where we're at, right? Culturalists and ethnologists. I think that's where we're at. I'm going to read from there. You're, you're good. Yeah, that's where you are. Culturalists and ethnologists have demonstrated that institutions are primary in relation to affects and structures. For structures are not mental, they are present in things. Not going to read that. In the forms of social production and reproduction. Even an author like Marcuse, one whom, whom one would not suspect of complacence in this regard, acknowledges that culturalism started on the right track, introducing desire into production, strengthening the link between instinctual and economic structure, and at the same time indicating the possibility of progress beyond the patrocentive acquisitive culture. Then what caused culturalism to go wrong? And here again, there is no contradiction in the fact that it started on the right track, and that it went wrong from the start. I like that. There's no contradiction in the fact that it started on the right track and that it went wrong from the start. Perhaps the answer lies in the postulate common to Oedipal relativism and Oedipal absolutism, i.e. the stubborn maintenance of the familialist perspective, which wreaks havoc everywhere. For if the institution is first understood as a familial institution, it matters little to say that the familial complex varies with the institutions, or that Oedipus is, to the contrary, a nuclear constant around which families and institutions turn. The culturalists invoke other triangles, maternal uncle at nephew for example. But the Oedipalists have no difficulty in demonstrating that these are imaginary variations of one and the same structural constant, different figures of one and the same symbolic triangulation, which are not identical either with the personages who come to realize the triangulation or with the attitudes they come that come to place these personages in relation to each other. But inversely, the invocation of such a transcendent symbolism does not rescue the structuralist from the narrowest familial point of view. The same holds for the endless debates on, is it daddy, is it mommy? You are neglecting the mother. No, you're the one who fails to see the father off to the side as the empty position. This doesn't seem like it adds uh, terribly much uh, to what we were talking about, but essentially is continuing to say the same thing, uh, talking about sort of the different ways that the breeds of psychoanalysts have taken Oedipus uh, to mean different things inside of cultural discussions. And 
they're just critiquing. I really like that quote of for uh, institutions are structures are not mental. They are present in things. I, th I think you could misread that as a, some kind of objectivist structuralist statement, but I don't think that's what they're saying. I think it just goes back to what we've talked about all along about, you know, there being no split between a fantastical m mental realm of understanding and the social production. Because ultimately they play upon desiring production the same way on the flows. Is that essentially, I mean, that's, uh, Holland talks a lot about uh, this idea of uh, social production and desire production. Uh, essentially, when they, we talk about the uh, the savages, uh, the, whatever we want to call them, the primitive societies, uh, their potions and their rituals and all of those things play upon, they're just as real as anything else because they play upon the flows of uh, flows of everything and everything acts directly upon each other in a material sense. So therefore, effectively, they're all just as real as each other. The conflict between culturalists and orthodox psychoanalysts has often been reduced to these evaluations of the respective roles of the mother and the father, or of the pre-Oedipal and the Oedipal, without allowing either side to lead the family or even Oedipus. Always oscillating between the famous two poles, the pre-Oedipal maternal pole and of the imaginary, and the Oedipal paternal pole of the structural. Both on the same axis, both speaking the same language of a familialized social realm, where one pole designates the customary maternal dialects, while the other designates the imperative law of the language of the father. The ambiguity of what Cardiner called the primary institution has been clearly shown. In certain cases, it can be a question of the way desire invests the social field from childhood and under the familial stimuli coming from the adult. All the conditions would then be given for an adequate, extrafamilial, understanding of the libido. But more often, it is solely a question of the familial organization itself, which is thought to be lived first by a child as a microcosm, then projected into the adult and social development. Mikhail Dufresne, analyzing the concepts of Cardinal, raises these essential questions. Is it the family that is the primary? Will the political, the economic, and social are secondary? Which comes first from the viewpoint of the libido, the familial investment or the social investment? And methodologically, is it necessary to go from the child to the adult, or the adult to the child? From this point of view, the discussion can only go around in circles between the holders of a cultural interpretation and the holders of a symbolic or structural interpretation of the same organization. Uh, again, uh, talking back and forth over and over that of the originalists and the people who believe it's uh, learned. And they, they're saying it's neither and both, uh, I guess. Uh, I may stop halfway through. If you want, like, I can give it a shot. Please, Will. Thank God. Yeah, sure. A second postulate common to the culturalists and the symbol symbolists, symbolists should be added. They all agree that, in our patriarchal and capitalist society at least, Oedipus is sure a thing even if they underline, as does Fromm, the elements of a new matriarchy. They all agree that our society is the stronghold of Oedipus, the starting point for re-encountering an Oedipal structure everywhere. Or, on the contrary, they hold that the terms and the relations should be made to vary within non-Oedipal complexes that are no less familial on that account. That is why our preceding criticism was directed as at Oedipus, 
as it is meant to command our respect and to function for us. It is, it is not at the weakest point, the primitives, that Oedipus must be attacked, but at the strongest point, at the level of the strongest link, by revealing the degree of disfiguration it implies and brings to bear on desiring production, on the syntheses of the unconscious and on libidinal investments in our cultural and social milieu. Not that Oedipus counts for nothing in our society. We have said repeatedly that Oedipus is demanded and demanded again and again. And even an attempt as profound as Lacan uh, at shaking loose from the yoke of Oedipus has been interpreted as an unhoped for means of making it heavier still and of resurrecting it on the baby and the schizo. To be sure... It is not only legitimate, but indispensable that the ethnological and the historical explanation uh, not be in contradiction with our social organization, or that this organization contain, it, it, contain in its own way the basic elements of the ethnological hypothesis. This is what Marx was saying when he recalled the requirements of a universal history, but as he went on to say, provided that the current organization be capable of conducting its own criticism. And yet, Oedipus's autocritique is something rarely seen in our organization, of which psychoanalysis forms a part. In certain respects, it is correct to question all social formations starting from Oedipus, but not because Oedipus might be a truth of the unconscious that is especially visible where we are concerned. On the contrary, because it is a mystification of the unconscious that has only succeeded with us by assembling parts and wheels of its apparatus from elements of the previous social formations. It is universal in that sense. Thus, it is indeed within capitalist society that the critique of Oedipus must always resume its point of departure and find again its point of arrival. I love that. I love this. I love it so much. So uh, let's go back a little bit because we had discussed previously in another section uh, why you can't fuck your mom and you can't fuck your kids inside of primitive societies. It's not Oedipal in nature, but it's simply the nature of uh, your need for your familial relations to carry on genealogically down or for you to be able to trade off uh, your sisters, your daughters, things like that. Uh, there, There were reasons that they didn't do these things in primitive societies. And uh, Will, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of this final part of this paragraph is basically saying, so what we've done is we've taken these facts about how primitive societies worked, and we've said, oh, that's Oedipus. That's why. It's always been there. When, of course, there are a lot of other reasons for it. Yeah, no, it's like I I see here the transvaluation. I see here attempting to allow for a space of autocritique within psychoanalysis. Like, this is that sort of, like, sometimes you you have to be, like, uh, you have to caution sort of a Nietzsche-Marx reading of this. But here, like, this is where I think it's totally safe and totally correct to do that. Um, And, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think I finally kind of understand when they're talking about the universal here. This really helped me when they're talking about it. It's universal in the sense of assembling the parts and wheels from elements of all the previous social formations. I know, I know that's come up before, but that seemed to crystallize it for me. No, actually that's, that's like 
one of the better uh, again I, when they use allegory i think it helps everything there's so much more that helps um but that's it's such a great simple way of putting it together i like it a lot it is a mystification of the unconscious that has only succeeded with us by assembling the parts and wheels of its apparatus from elements of previous social formations. I mean, that's basically what they've been trying to say for the, what, the last, I mean, this entire book. I mean, that's the kind of the point of the entire book um, at, a, at some level, that uh, Oedipus was not always there, that we've created it and we're able to assign it in retrospect, we retconning. Which is why I think like that's that's where Nietzsche's second essay in the genealogy comes in, right? Like we we retcon <laughs> we retcon the entirety of the history of societal development within this discipline, and like it's just it's insane, right? So the, if you look at the historical context of this book, like sure, like the the you know there were already like. Oedipus complex jokes floating around in the 60s, like, you know, Freud is discredited, but then, you, you know, you have everybody walking around in France talking about, you know, uh, their, their, their issues with their mother and their father and, 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 you know, not recognizing how this is so deeply embedded within the cultural discourse as it relates to everyone's own history. So, yeah. All right, I'm going to continue on because I, I want to try to get through a couple more. We're going to go over two hours here. Uh, we can go a little bit over, luckily, so we're going to go a bit over. Oedipus is a limit, but limit has many different meanings, since it can be at the beginning as an inaugural event in the role of a matrix, or in the middle as a structural function ensuring the mediation of personages and the ground of their relations, or at the end as an eschatological determination. Now, we have seen that it is only in this last sense that Oedipus is a limit. There is also the case for desiring production. But in fact, this last sense itself can be understood in many different ways. In the first place, desiring production is situated at the limits of social production. The decoded flows at the limits of the codes and the territorialities. The body without organs at the limits of the socius. We shall speak of an absolute limit every time the schizo flows pass through the wall, scramble all the codes, and deterritorialize the socius. The body without organs is the deterritorialized socius, the wilderness where the decoded flows run free, the end of the world, the apocalypse. Oh, so it's the year 2020. Excellent. Secondly, however, the relative limit is no more nor less than the capitalist social formation because the latter engineers, machine, and mobilizes flows that are effectively decoded. Oh, and, and, and that's a weird... Uh, I'm going to reread that sentence. I put the inflection incorrectly. Secondly, however, the relative limit is no more nor less than the capitalist social formation, because the latter engineers and mobilizes flows that are effectively decoded but does so by substituting for the codes a quantifying axiomatic that is even more oppressive. With the result, the capitalism, in conformity with the movement by which it counteracts its own tendency, is continually drawing near the wall, while at the same time pushing the wall further away. Schizophrenia is the absolute limit, but capitalism is the relative limit. Thirdly, there is no social formation that does not foresee or experience a foreboarding of the real form in which the limit threatens to arrive, and which it wards off with all the strength it can command. 
Whence the obstinacy with which the formations preceding capitalism encast the merchant and the technician, preventing flows of money and flows of production from assuming an autonomy that would destroy their codes. Such is the real limit. So I have no notes on this section, so Varun, maybe, possibly? Come on, on, Varun. Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, in this case, the decoded flow, I think it it, it goes back to that seminar that I was talking about. But in terms of what's happening, I think in this regard, it's it's social customs and stuff. I think it's almost for their reading of their sort of uh, bizarro, almost anthropology, is that uh, these social codes and stuff are supposed to uh, protect almost the, 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 you know, they, the decoded flow is the nightmare. They're supposed to protect that decoded flow from unleashing itself on, on, on the socius and flow through it. Right. Uh, I don't know. I think the lowest is the example of the young person who gives like, gets like a new haircut that's never been seen before or something like that. But, uh, in this case, and I think it's, it's under, and that's why he says that capitalism is almost paradoxical in the sense that it's structured under the, this idea of the decoded flow. We'll see that later. And in that sense that, you know, I think you also see this in, like, I think in, in the, the Communist Manifesto, right, when they write about essentially the, the almost capitalism's almost vampiric nature or that sort of monstrous, almost abstract, really abstract nature that in the sense that it's, you know, it's destroying old traditions, blah, blah, blah. It, it just sort of goes in and it just takes out everything with it. It's, it, I think it's all there in, in that sense. But I think the part that sort of throws me off is that, so capitalism does sort of have um, the limit where it's, it reaches a relative limit. But I think, but then they say the schizophrenic is the one who reaches the absolute limit, which sort of confuses me. Is it, is it like, is it like, it, it's, so it's, it's almost like it's, it's, it's capitalism's like, dependent on the schizo or something well it's uh, so holland talks through um when he's referring back to this uh this section and in general social production uh and they they mentioned it here for the first time is the axiomatization of uh, flows uh axiomatic social organization under capitalism by contrast is quantitative and strictly meaningless Nameless workers, regardless of gender, are valued only as abstractly quantified amounts of labor power on the market, and no qualitative distinction between labor and surplus labor any longer exists. Original and still fundamental capitalist axiom, as I have said, conjoins deterritorialized and quantified flows of liquid wealth, monetary wealth no longer embodied in landed property, with deterritorialized flows of free labor, workers no longer tied to specific means of production who therefore have no means to sustain life other than by sale of labor power. Uh, The eternal search for new sources of profit, capitalism continually axiomatizes other qualitatively dissimilar resource flows, transforming them into quantitatively exchangeable commodities on the market. Uh, the continual expand of capitalism is what they're referring to, is what he's referring to here. And so that limit, uh, and I think that's what you're asking about, Varun, is the moving... Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the limit is is almost a perception-based thing. It's not that there's an actual limit at any point, but that within capitalist society uh, versus uh, the communal sort of original society or even despotic uh, limit is something that exists within a society that 
they're continually uh, sort of expunging the excess. Uh, they do so originally by, again, uh, rituals, orgies, uh, feasts, all kinds of stuff that keeps things, if you want to use the term imbalance, maybe the best. Uh, with despotic, they actually, it's uh, as they refer to it, uh, it's like the worst of both worlds. You have the continual excess, but it, the excess is brought in very specifically to a, a stand-in for God, the despot, um, who who gets everything, but the peasant is still alienated ultimately, uh, not to use too Marxist a term. But the limit that exists within capital is continuously something that is right there that all of us almost feel oppressively, repressively, uh, and that moves consistently based on our ability to take those decoded flows and continually commodify them. And that's what happens within capital. And that that's why that moves, because then if I've found a thing that is at that limit, but then we've commodified it and sold it, that limit moves again, and capital is able to continually increase that uh, pretty much ongoing. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's in regards to that schizo-revolutionary that takes the decoded flow to its very limit. It's, I think it's all, and it's, it's all almost coming down to that schizo-revolutionary in a sense. Yes, I think so. Uh, they, I mean, they get into that uh, pretty... They they get into that pretty clearly, actually, really fast here, too. Um, but the idea of uh, relative limit is no more or less than the capitalist social formation. Uh, right before they do say, we shall speak of an absolute limit every time the schizo flows pass through the walls, scramble all the codes, and deterritorialize the socius. The idea of a schizo uh, essentially not caring about how codes flow or how what codes are. That is literally consistently the limit because it kind of encompasses all, wouldn't it? Yeah, one second. I'm just trying to re reply to Jack of Hearts comments. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think at least in my understanding of the third paralogist, I mean, it's so you know, it, it is Kantian in the sense that they're asking what are the po what are the conditions for experience, but they're also giving you know, Deleuze inspired by Memon is is reading for you know that desire has to engender the a priori as well, right? So the a priori synthesis is engendered by desire itself. And that, that all comes from Maimon and the systems he builds up in difference and repetition and his readings of Leibniz and stuff. But uh, with regards to that, so the conditions for all real experience comes down to the, you know, the, the, the gradual process of the three syntheses unfolding. And the third synthesis is, is essentially where, you know, it's almost like desire becomes conscious, but it's a misrecognition, right? It's that misrecognition that that was my desire. Rather than the fact that it was, it's, it's a it's a whole other scenario, right? And it's also that you know the the the, the subject never really comes to that almost whole recognition because the subject's only a small part, right? They say that the subject only consummates a small energy to the entire source of production that occurs. So I'm actually going to read the next paragraph, and I think we'll stop there and we'll have a quick discussion because then I think the next paragraph closes out this thought before they move on to. Um, a lot more things which we will uh discuss either we'll do more tomorrow uh we'll, we'll decide at the end of this uh if we continue tomorrow if we continue next week uh, when such societies are confronted with this real limit repressed from within but which returns to them from without they regard this event with melancholy as a sign of their approaching death for example the bohannans Describe the TIV economy, which codes three kinds of flows, consumer goods, prestige goods, and women and children. When money supervenes, it can only be coded as an object of prestige. 
Yet merchants use it to lay hold of sectors of consumer goods traditionally held by the women. All the codes vacillate. Doubtless, to begin with, money and to finish with money in an operation that cannot be expressed in terms of a code. Seeing the trucks that leave loaded with export goods, the Tiv elders deplore this situation and know what is happening, but do not know where to place their blame. A harsh reality. But fourthly, this limit inhibited from the interior was already projected onto the primordial beginning, a mythical matrix as the imaginary limit. How can this nightmare be imagined? The invasion of the socius by non-coded flows that move like lava? An irrepressible wave of shit, as in the Ford myth? Or the intense germinal influx? The this side of incest, as in the Urugu myth? Urugu myth, which introduces disorder into the world by acting as the representative of desire. Whence, in the fifth and last instance, the importance of the task of displacing the limit, causing it to pass into the interior of the socius, in the middle, between the beyond, between a beyond of alliance and affiliative this side of, between a representation of alliance and the representation affiliation, as one attempts to tame the dreaded forces of a river by digging an artificial riverbed, or by diverting it into a thousand shallow little streams. Oedipus is this displaced limit. Yes, Oedipus is universal, but the error lies in having believed in the following alternative. Either Oedipus is the product of the social repression psychic repression system, in which case it is not universal, or it is universal in a position of desire. In reality, it is universal because it is the displacement of the limit that haunts all society, the displaced represented, that disfigures what all societies dread absolutely as their most profound negative, namely, decoded flows of desire. I don't have any final thoughts on that. I mean, I think, I think what this chapter highlights is the nuance of the whole thing. Yes. I mean, you much. can't... You can't just say it. You know, I, I also, you know, I was also falling upon. Oh, so it's you know, it's just a prohibition of incest. And, you know, I, I think, I think, I think most people who read this is suddenly get that almost eyeball moment. Like, so there is still so much more in their system that they're going to start uncovering out. <laughs> it's it makes it a lot more rigorous of a study, but it also makes it a lot harder for us to read. Yeah, it's it's it deals so deeply with sort of the nuance and, um, I mean we're. Anytime you're talking in general about decoded flows and how we, we're going to even interpret them, let alone talk about them and concepts like this, you're going to hit places of nuance and poetry, for lack of a better word, that become a thing we need to discuss and go through. And I, I, it's one of the reasons I like, uh, when as I was reading through this chapter, I'm glad we're stopping where we are because uh, it'll give me time to digest uh, a lot of this. But it's just such a... it's. It's such a breakdown of what they were trying to say earlier and how, I don't know, how we can regard and think about the coded flows of desire within a society and the uncoded flows. It's great. Uh, any last thoughts? Uh, because I think we're going to sort of wind up here. Um, the question would be, do we... Uh, I would vote we have a discussion tomorrow. Uh, we do our classic sort of review session and go over all the way up to this point. And then next week we finish the section uh, because I think 
And uh, it's uh, they're related, obviously, because they're part of the same section. But I think this is a very nice, clear cutting point uh, for us to sort of break this part in half and have a lot deeper discussion. Uh, if you want to go into the chat, uh, you can thumbs up is going to be uh, we do tomorrow as a review. Thumbs down is uh, tomorrow we just read through. And I will that's a pretty easy setup. So tomorrow will be a review. We will go over all of these points, uh, which is good because it'll give me a chance to take a break and uh, edit through this. So uh, I want to thank all of you guys for joining us. All of you, all of you so much. Uh, and thank you all for your questions and comments in the chat and for uh, your interrogations. Uh, please join us. We need your lenses, as I always like to say. Thank you, guys. That's where I'm going to edit everything else. Thank you guys. Really, this was awesome. What a good section.